is Father's Day today. I had the joy of talking to each of my children, and what a blessing. I want to give encouragement. I just felt impressed to do this before I preach tonight, because I know that there are parents here tonight that you've raised your children for God, you've raised them in Sabbath school, some have gone to Adventist elementary schools and academies and colleges, and some have made choices that have disappointed you and have walked away. And you've been troubled about that. You've, you've wondered, what did I do wrong in the raising of my son or my daughter or my child? What mistakes did I make? If you go down that road, you ultimately blame God because you have to ask, what mistakes did God make in heaven? Why Lucifer rebelled? Was there something wrong that God did there? Or what mistakes did God make in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve rebelled? When you give the power of choice, there is always the possibility that the wrong choice will be made. You can never stay away from that. You see, you can be an Adventist evolutionist without knowing it. Because evolution says that we are largely shaped by our heredity and our environment. And the gospel says that heredity and environment plays a part in our choices, but ultimately God gives to every one of us the power of choice. Now I want to read to you a very familiar Bible text, and I want you to see it for the depth of its meaning before I preach. And this is going to be an encouragement to something, somebody tonight. These next three minutes may be more encouraging than the whole sermon. Now, don't, don't fall asleep during the sermon. It's going to be powerful too. But I want you to turn to Proverbs 22, verse 6. Many Adventist parents read this and they feel guilty. But I'm going to help you understand the background of that passage, and it's going to give you hope rather than guilt. Are you ready? Proverbs 22, verse 6. You've read it before, and it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. So many parents say, look, my child made choices to go astray, and I must have not trained them up the right way. Okay? But here's the meaning of that text. You see that word train up? It comes from a Hebrew word that has its origin in an Aramaic expression. And the expression does not say train up at all. It says, rub your child's gums. Rub the gums. What's that all about? When a Hebrew mother was teaching her child to nurse, if the child had a difficult time nursing, the mother would take her finger and put a little fig paste in honey in that finger and put it in the child's mouth, and the child would begin to suck. And... What this text is really saying is this, place a taste in your child's mouth when they're young for spiritual things. And no matter what choices they make in life, that taste for spirituality will always be there. So whatever your choices your kids have made, if you did the best you could as parents and you prayed with them and you brought them to Sabbath school, you have placed within their heart a spiritual longing and a spiritual taste. And they may make choices 
But that spiritual taste is always going to be there, and the Holy Spirit's going to work on that spiritual taste to lead them to make a choice for Jesus and his kingdom. So this is a wonderful promise because it's a promise for parents who've done the very best they could with their kids. Sure, they made mistakes. What parent has never made mistakes with their child? But you have placed a spiritual taste in their mouth. That spiritual taste is still there today on this Father's Day. Can we say praise the Lord? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for every godly parent that's here. They've done the very best they could. Sure, they made some mistakes, but they put a spiritual taste in their child's mouth. And that spiritual taste is still there. That spiritual longing is still in their heart. And Lord, I pray that you would nurture that spiritual longing, just like that baby who had that longing to nurse at her mother's breast, just like that baby who who had that taste in their mouth, that sweet taste. Lord, I pray that our children, every single one of them, wherever they are tonight, they would have that spiritual longing, that spiritual taste that would be nurtured by the Holy Spirit and that you would lead them closer to you and save them in your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On those rare occasions where my wife convinces me to go shopping, I often get lost. My wife and I have been married for 52 years. And she knows that shopping is not my most favorite thing to do. I would not say that she is an expert shopper either, but there are those times when shopping calls and it becomes a necessity. And that the times I accompany her to the mall, I often get lost. Now, when I get lost, my wife knows where to find me. I'm often in a bookstore. There's something about books that fascinate me. Books have this magnetic draw that brings me in. And book titles particularly fascinate me. Recently, I got lost in a mall. And I was in a bookstore and looking over book titles. And uh, eventually, I came across a book title. And here was the title that really captured my attention. It was called Outnumbered. Incredible Stories of History's Most Surprising Battlefield Upsets. The book was the story of military wars that should have been lost, but they were won. It talks about Hannibal's armies of 55,000 that came across the mountains of northern Italy and attacked the invincible Roman army of 80,000 and how Hannibal armies won. It talks about the battles of Alexander the Great in fighting the Persians where he never should have won, but he won. Outnumbered. As I thought about that book title, my mind began to be stirred. And I thought about the fact that in this life as Christians, we are often outnumbered. The forces of hell are marshaled against us. The devil in all his evil angels throws every temptation after us. We may seem to be facing certain loss. Defeat may seem inevitable. Victory may seem out of sight. But thank God, though we may be outnumbered, victory in Jesus Christ is certain. Jesus will win at last. The theme of the last book of the Bible is Jesus wins and Satan loses. 
the heart of this battle is found in the book of Revelation, and it's found in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation, the 12th chapter, is the hinge upon which the entire book of Revelation turns. In Revelation chapter 12, you have four episodes. These episodes take you down the corridors of time. They take you down the millenniums. They describe an intergalactic struggle, a Star Wars controversy, a cosmic controversy between good and evil. And in four episodes, episodes four DVD snapshots, in four vignettes, in four chapters, Revelation 12 takes you from the fall of Lucifer down through the centuries to the birth of Christ, down through the Middle Ages, down to Satan making war on the remnant. And in these four great battles, these four great universal struggles, where Satan marshals all his forces against the people of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God, in every one of these instances, Jesus wins and Satan loses. And the purpose of Revelation 12 that introduces Revelation 13, the chapters on the beast and the chapters on the final conflict when man cannot buy or sell, and when it introduces Revelation 14 that comes to the triumph of the gospel and the three angels' message, and Revelation 15 and 16, the seven last plagues, and Revelation 17, the woman that rides upon the scarlet-colored beast, and Revelation 18, where it talks about the Babylon has fallen, and Revelation 19, the coming of Christ, and 20, the millennium, and 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. The reason why Revelation 12 is so strategic, because it writes indelibly upon our mind that whatever conflict we go through, whatever trial we go through, whatever difficulty we go through, however dark the last days become, in Jesus, because of Jesus, and through Jesus, we indeed will be victorious. Revelation chapter 12 introduces us to the theme that Jesus wins and Satan loses and Christ is, a victorious, is victorious. We begin with Revelation, the 12th chapter. And we, take, we look at that chapter in fairly extensive detail tonight. Revelation chapter 12, we begin with verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, neither was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now notice, and war broke out in heaven. That's a strange place for war, isn't it? You think about war on earth. You think about the struggle between nations. You think about the rise of the kingdoms. But the Bible says, war broke out in heaven. Now in heaven, every angel had to make a choice. Was this merely a mental war game? It was that, but it was much more. There was a physical conflict that actually took place. Because the Bible says, and Michael and his angels fought. There was no neutrality in this conflict in heaven. Every angel had to make a decision. Two-thirds of the angels made a decision for Christ. One-third of the angels made a decision against him. Satan said, 
God is arbitrary. God is unfair. God is unjust. The law of God restricts our freedom. And Satan claimed that God was a vindictive judge, that God was a wrathful tyrant, that it was not necessary to worship God, to have joy and happiness in the universe. And every angel had to make a decision. And down through history, every human being has been part of this larger universal struggle, this larger universal conflict. Is God worthy to be worshipped? Does God have his best interest in view for his, all of his creatures? Is God worthy of our praise, of our worship? Is God worthy of our obedience? These were the issues in this great controversy between good and evil. There, was no, there could be no neutrality. Some time ago, a college student going to a Christian college needed a summer job. He wanted the best paying possible summer job. So he looked through the newspaper and he found an ad in a lumberjack camp up in Canada that he would go and work in the camp all summer cutting wood in the deep Canadian forest. And as he would do that, he was going to be paid quite a handsome sum. He signed up for the job and his Christian friends said, look, we think this is a great mistake. You're going to be up in this lumberjack camp, and these men are cursing, swearing, they are immoral, uh, you're going to have to live with them for the summer, and uh, once they find out you're a Christian, they're going to break you like a twig. They're going to tear you apart. They're going to ridicule you. They'll be cynical. They'll be skeptical. We don't think you ought to go. And he said, look, I need the money. I'm going to go. So he went, worked all summer, June, July, and August, came back to college with this handsome sum of money. And his friend said to him, how did you ever survive the summer? How did you ever survive with these cursing, swearing, lumberjacks, tough, rough, tumble? He said it was very simple. simple. I just made sure all summer that nobody could ever figure out that I was a Christian. There is no neutrality in the final crisis of this earth's history. Ellen White makes a remarkable statement in the fifth Bible commentary, 1093. She says, Christ shows that there can be no such thing as neutrality in his service. The soul must not be satisfied with anything short of entire consecration. Consecration of thought, voice, spirit, in every organ of mind and body. It is not enough that the vessel be emptied, it must be filled with the grace of Christ. In the last days of earth's history, just as there was a conflict in heaven and every angel had to make a choice, so every one of us are confronted with this choice of all-out total surrender to the living Christ and allowing Jesus to fill our lives. Notice what Scripture says Revelation 12, verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Underline that expression, circle that expression. They did not prevail. The devil was cast out of the kingdom of heaven, and he will be cast through Jesus Christ out of the kingdom of your heart. He did not prevail then, and he will not prevail now. 
He did not prevail there, and he will not prevail here. He did not prevail in heaven, in the kingdom there. And when you and I come to the living Christ, no matter what temptations we face, no matter what challenges we face, through Christ and by Christ and because of Christ, the devil will not prevail. Now notice what the Bible says. It says, Michael and his angels fought. The question becomes, who is Michael? And why is this title of Michael used? Now, the expression Michael is used five times in the Bible. That's all. So let's look at the expressions for Michael. Let's raise the question why the name Michael is used here in this specific spot. Now, when we notice the end of the name Michael, we notice the, word, the letters E-L, and when we see those letters, it means, it leads us back to Elohim, one who is like God. Could it be that this Michael is another name for Jesus? Does the Bible evidence lead in that direction? And if it does, how do you explain the expression Michael the archangel? We're going to come to that. First, the Bible teaches that Christ is the great I am. He never had a beginning and will never have an ending. He is the eternal Christ. And if Christ is not eternal, if he never had a beginning, he cannot offer us eternal life. If God sends somebody lesser than his divine son to save us, Jesus then would not have had the eternal life to save us. So Christ never had a beginning. He never had an ending. He's not a created being. He's not an angel. Now, whoever Michael is, he has the power to cast Satan out of heaven. If someone has the power to cast Satan out of heaven, he must be very powerful. The second mention of Michael is in the book of Jude. Now, Jude only has one chapter. And we look there at Jude, and we'll look at verse 9. Jude, verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, and we're going to come back to this expression, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. Now, what do you know about Moses? You know that when Moses was on Mount Nebo and looked across to Jordan, Moses longed to go into the promised land, but Moses died there in the deserts. And after his death, his grave couldn't be found. Moses was resurrected from the dead as a type of those who will be resurrected when Jesus comes. And you remember the great transfiguration on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, who had died and was resurrected, represents the dead who will be resurrected when Jesus comes. And Elijah, who did not see death, appeared to Jesus, and they talked to him about his death. And I can suppose Moses said, Lord, hang in there as you go to the cross to bear the sins of humanity. Remember that many like me will be resurrected. So Moses was resurrected from the dead. Whoever Michael is, he must have the authority not only to cast Satan out of heaven, but he must have the authority over death and the authority to raise Moses from the dead. Now that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? But why would it say, yet Michael the archangel? The word archangel does not mean that Christ is an angel, a created being. The term archangel simply means commander and chief of all the angels, the one who commands all the angels, and one of Christ's function is to command the angels. Now, you remember the Bible says when Jesus comes in Matthew 17, verse 26, he comes with all the angels. And you remember 
when the Bible describes Christ's coming in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And here you have the key that links Jesus as the commander-in-chief of the angels as the one coming with all the angels. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice verse 16. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of what, everybody? The voice of the archangel. So Jesus comes with the voice of the archangel. What does that mean? He comes with the voice of triumph. He comes as the commander of all the angels. He comes to call the dead from the graves, like Moses was called. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain together shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus, the mighty conqueror over Satan, every time Michael is used in the Bible, five times, it's always used in Christ in direct conflict with Satan. And Jesus, the commander-in-chief of the angels, Jesus, the mighty warrior, Jesus, the conquering general, Jesus, the victorious Lord, Jesus, the triumphant king, Christ, the Michael, commands all the angels in heaven, and the victorious Christ casts Satan out of heaven. Jesus, the mighty warrior, argues with Satan, contends with Satan over the body of Moses, and the one who is life, and the one who has the gift of eternal life, brings Moses forth from the grave, resurrects him from the dead, and Moses is in heaven tonight as a witness that Christ is power over the grave. Three times in the book of Daniel, it uses Michael. Twice in Daniel 10, when Daniel prays three times, and as Daniel prays three times for Israel to be allowed to go free from Babylonian captivity now that Persia has taken over, Cyrus hesitates in signing the decree. And the angels of hell surround Cyrus's mind, and as they do, Daniel prays, and Michael comes down with the mighty angels of heaven as an illustration of the mighty deliverer, and he beats back the forces of hell, and Cyrus signs the decree. So twice in Daniel chapter 10, Michael battles over the mind of Cyrus so Israel can go free as a type of the last day Israel that will be delivered. The last mention of Michael we have in Daniel is Daniel chapter 12. Now you'll remember that in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days sits and judgment begins. And the one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. In Daniel chapter 12, Michael stands up. Daniel 12 verse 1, this is the end of the judgment. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Who is Michael? He's the great prince that stands watch over the sons of your people. That there'll be a, and at that time, there'll be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even at that same time. And at that time, your people will be delivered, everyone found written in the book. Who is Michael? He's the mighty conqueror. He's the victorious Christ. He is the one who stands up at the end of the judgment and says, it, it is enough. Enough war, enough suffering, enough heartache, enough cancer, enough death, enough famine, enough pain. It is enough. He stands up. Judgment is over. He comes streaming down the court of the sky, and sin and sickness and suffering will be no more. He comes to deliver his people. He calls, and the graves are open. 
He calls and the righteous dead are resurrected. They receive glorious immortal bodies and Christ's living receive their immortal bodies and they ascend to heaven. Now, in the Bible, there are many names of Jesus. Help me tonight. Jesus is the Lamb of God because he's that sacrifice. Jesus is the Lion because he is all-powerful. Jesus is the Rock of Ages because he is one in whom we can trust and place our feet upon and never be shaken. Jesus is the bread of life because he satisfies our inner spiritual hunger. He's the water of life because he satisfies the thirst in our soul for him. Give me some other names of Jesus tonight. What other names of Jesus do we have? He's the counselor because he counsels us in the times of our deepest need. What else is he? He is the light because he illuminates our darkness. Somebody from this side, what else? who else is Jesus? He is the word because he is the one we can trust. What other names of Jesus do we have? Yes, you know, Jesus, why so many different names of Jesus? Because he is the infinite Christ. Michael is a special name of Jesus. Michael is a war term. Michael is a name used of Christ five times mentioned in the Bible as the one who is the commander-in-chief of all the angels, the one who has never lost a battle with Satan, and the one who will come to your aid to beat the forces of hell back. When you are going through the fiercest temptation, when you're about ready to give in, on your knees cry out to the mighty warrior. On your knees cry out to the one that's never lost a battle with Satan. The purpose of Revelation chapter 12 is more than a history lesson. It is to prepare a people to face the greatest temptations in history in the last days. It's to prepare them to go through earth's crisis. And it is to reveal the heart of the book of Revelation is the living Christ. He is the Jesus that was victorious over Satan in heaven, and he is the, the Jesus that cast him out of heaven. He is the Jesus that caused Satan not to prevail there, and he is the Christ that will not lose the battle for your soul as you cry out to him. Centuries pass, and we come to the second great battle in Revelation. Revelation, the 12th chapter. And we're looking there, centuries past, Satan now focuses his hellish wiles upon Christ as he's born. And the Bible tells the story in Revelation, the 12th chapter, and we look there at Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 and onward. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 and onward. His tail, that is the dragon's tail, Satan drew a third part of the stars of heaven, that's a third of the angels. He threw them to the earth. The dragon, Satan, stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon it was, as it was to be born. Who is this child that was soon to be born? Who is that? Satan. Next verse. She bore a male child. Who's that? Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. A rod is a symbol of authority. Christ came with all the authority of the Father to usher in the kingdom of grace to prepare us for the kingdom of glory. It is a rod of iron. 
It is not a wooden rod that can be broken. Iron symbols authority. So here you have this rod of unbroken authority. The unbroken authority of Christ who comes from heaven to dwell in human flesh, to die in our behalf. To, 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 he has the authority of the Father as the eternal one to come to make that sacrifice to bear the guilt, shame, and sin of the world. So the Scripture says that Jesus comes, He's born of a virgin, but yet Satan focuses his hellish arts upon Jesus. From the time He's born, Satan tries to destroy Him. A decree is passed that all male children under two be killed, and an angel appears to Joseph and Mary go to, Jeru go to Egypt from Bethlehem. Satan fails, but Satan dogs Jesus all of his life. And there, Satan attacks him in the wilderness with every temptation. But Jesus is victorious, and he meets Satan with the Word of God. And on the cross, Satan surrounds him with darkness and whispers in his ear, if you bear the guilt and shame of sin, you'll never see the Father's face again. But Jesus dies victorious, and he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And it was a dark, dark Friday. Judas betrayed him, and Peter denied him, and the disciples forsook him, and the, and the Romans crucified him. It was dark, dark Friday. The clouds circled around the cross. The lightning flashed. The thunder crashed. The birds stopped their singing. The, the rain fell. The flowers drooped their heads. The disciples wept that day. It was dark, dark Friday, but hallelujah, Sunday morning was coming. And there on that Sunday morning, the sun rose again, and the, the clouds filled the sky again, and the flowers bloomed again, and the birds sang again, and the Father said, Son, thy Father calls thee. And the stone was rolled away, and the Roman soldiers fell over like dead men, and Christ came out alive, victorious over death, and because Jesus is victorious over death, your son, your daughter can be resurrected again. That husband, that wife that you buried on that grassy hillside can be resurrected again and they can see Christ again. Jesus was victorious over Satan in his life. He was victorious over Satan in his death. Jesus beat back the forces of hell and all the demons in the world must surrender to the living Christ. Not long ago, we were holding an evangelistic meeting in Mwanza, Tanzania. It was satellited to 4,500 different places. 35,000 people were out to the stadium on that first Sabbath. Now, in that part of the world, there's a lot of witchcraft. There's a lot of spiritualism. And we saw God come down. We established a tent in which we had 1,000 people in different shifts praying and they prayed round the clock in the prayer tent. The devil cannot have hold upon you unless you yield to his power. There are three levels of demonic activity in the Bible. There is temptation. All of us are faced with temptation. But if you yield to temptation repeatedly, you have demonic oppression. That is not possession. But the more we yield to temptation, 
the more we give Satan access to our life. But beyond oppression, there is possession. Possession occurs when a person voluntarily yields to demonic spiritual forces. The devil cannot possess your life without your choice, because if he could, he would possess all of our lives. So God has granted us the, the freedom of choice, and no committed Christian has to worry about demonic possession at all. But there in Africa, in many of these villages, many people have given their allegiance to the witch doctors and spiritualists in those villages. There was a village many hours from Mwanza that had a very powerful witch doctor. And this witch doctor would cast a spell upon people who believed in demon possession and would control their lives. They control their lives often through amulets or through demonic charms. And one of the most powerful witch doctors in that area cast a spell on these amulets or charms and placed them on a trail outside the village. And she wanted to show her power. And upon that charm, she placed a curse. And the curse was that anybody who stepped on the charm would have severe paralysis in their legs and they would have severe pain in their legs. A woman in her late 20s, early 30s, was walking down the trail, and she was part of that village and had surrendered her mind to the evil spirits. And she put her feet on the demonic charms and immediately felt pain shooting up her legs. She, became, she had paralysis in the legs and terrible, terrible pain. They brought her to witch doctors in other villages to get the spell off her. They did incantations and charms through the night, and that spell rested upon her. They brought her to Christian pastors. There was no deliverance. She met a group of Seventh-day Adventists who began to study the Bible with her. And these Adventists focused her attention upon Jesus. They read her the Bible promises, greater is he that is in you than he, he who is in the world. They talked to her about the fact that on the cross of Calvary, according to Colossians 2, Christ triumphed over the principalities and powers of hell. She struggled with this pain. She struggled with this leg paralysis. And they said, we have heard Pastor Finley preaching in Mwanza, in the stadium. We are going to give to you the money for a bus ticket. And you get on the bus and you go to Mwanza. And they've got people that believe in prayer. They're on their knees praying. And Pastor Finley's talking about the triumph of Christ. He's focusing not on the power of evil, but on the power of good. He's focusing on the greatness of God. He's focusing on this almighty Jesus who cast Satan out of heaven. This almighty Jesus that faced all of hell's powers in our behalf. All of hell's strength in our behalf. See, we are tempted, but we're not tempted with all of Satan's power that he's put on Jesus. We are tempted, but we're not tempted with all of Satan's temptations. Jesus took the full power of Satan's temptations and he was victorious. He took every one of Satan's temptations, and he was victorious. 
they brought this woman to us. We brought her to the prayer tent. And our prayer warriors prayed over her, not for two minutes or three, but they prayed over her. And they prayed over her and they prayed over her. We talked to her about the, the, the mighty power of the living Christ. She said, Pastor, the pain is leaving. Pastor, the pain is gone. Pastor, I can walk again. And we saw by the grace of Christ this woman delivered. We saw miracle after miracle after miracle because Jesus Christ is victorious over the powers of hell. Four great episodes in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 is more than a history lesson. It introduces us to the Christ in heaven that cast the devil out and he did not prevail and he will not prevail in your life. It introduces us to the Christ who this, on this earth was victorious over the principalities and powers of hell and bore it all for you and me and who went to the cross and was resurrected from the dead. He triumphed over Christ, over Satan in his death and he triumphed over Satan in his life. We look now at the third episode. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, episode number 3. The New Testament church goes out in the power of the living Christ. And the gospel goes to the Mediterranean world. And according to Paul in Colossians 1.23, it goes to the ends of the earth. Satan brings compromise into the church. We have the long period of dark ages, but notice. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. The woman, who's the woman, everybody? The church fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred sixty days. You know that. You've studied it in prophecy. But I want you to see something in the text. That great period of Middle Ages, Dark Ages, 538 to 1798. But what did God do for the woman? What does the text say? What did God do for the woman? He did what for her? He prepared for her a what? Place. Now, Revelation chapter 12, it gets better than this. It gets better than this. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. But the woman, verse 14, who's the woman, everybody? The church was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into her, the wilderness to her place where she is what? Nourished for a time, times and a half a time in the presence of the serpent. Now, two expressions that are critical. The church would go through the period of dark ages where church and state united. But God would not be caught off guard. He would prepare a place for his church. Not only would he prepare a place, but she would be nourished in the wilderness of your life. God has prepared a place for you. When you're 48 years old and your kids are out of the home, and you discover your husband has had an affair, and you come to camp meeting alone in the wilderness of your life, the victorious Christ has prepared a place for you. And he's going to hold you close and nourish your heart. When you buy your retirement home in a spot in Michigan, in the warmth of the winter, And your husband dies of a heart attack. Or when you leave your friends behind in Michigan and you try a warmer climate 
and you go to a new community and you have no friends and your husband dies of a heart attack. You're in the wilderness of your life because you've never lived without him before. God's prepared a place for you. He nourishes you there. He nurtures you there. You see, whatever happens in our life, God is not unprepared for it. When the diagnosis is that you have just a few months to live, and this is your wilderness, this is your time of trouble, and you hang on by faith, God's prepared a place for you. God has prepared a place for you. And God nourishes us. God feeds us in the wilderness of our life. You would think that the church in the dark ages, driven into the wilderness, was defeated. But God had prepared a place, and Christ was victorious. And out of that wilderness would arise the Protestant Reformation. Out of that wilderness would, re would arise the Advent movement. Out of that wilderness would arise men and women who would be faithful to Christ at any cost. Come with me to inner Mongolia. And there in China, not the country of Mongolia, but the inner Mongolian China, come with me to a house meeting. Eight or ten gather. They quietly read the Word of God together. And their hearts are touched. They know it's against the law. And the leader of that small group knows that if she's discovered, she can be put in prison. But there's a hunger in the soul. The next week, 15 people come. The next week, 25 people come, and they have to move all of the furniture out of that room. And they, they sit on the floor, but pretty soon, too many people are coming, and it draws the attention of the authorities. And the authorities break into the Bible study, and they interrogate this little five-foot-two Chinese woman that's leading it. And as they interrogate her, they say, if you meet in your home again, you will go to prison. She says, I won't meet in my home again. But then she goes to other homes and continues the Bible study. <laughs> but pretty soon she's arrested. And her sentence in prison for conducting a Bible study is one year. One year in prison. It's a woman's prison. And she begins to sing in her prison cell the songs of heaven. She begins to sing in her prison cell about Jesus. These are hardened women. They are thieves. They are prostitutes. They are women of the street. But there's a need in their heart. There's a longing in, her, in their heart. And in the wilderness of this little five-foot-two woman's life, she sees that God has prepared a place for her in that prison. She sees that God is nourishing her soul. She begins to share the gospel. And she shares about Christ. She shares about His soon return. And as the weeks and months go by, there are now 60 to 80 prisoners, almost half that prison, are worshiping on Sabbath. And the prison superintendent comes to her. And he says, we have made a great mistake in putting you in prison. 
before you were in prison, you had to find your own converts. But we have given you a whole prison full. So we have decided to commute your sentence. Six months is up. You can go home. She looked up at them. And this, this really happened. I mean, this is not some preacher's... No, I didn't mean to say it that way. I was going to say this isn't a preacher's story. But no, that would have been bad. Um, somebody got it. The rest of you, your wife will explain it to you. Um, this, this really is, is, is really happened. So they, they say to her, you can go home now. It's six months. We got to go home. She said, no, that's against the law to send me home after six months. Because my sentence is a year, and my work here is not yet finished. <laughs> there in that prison, in her wilderness, she was nourished. See, Jesus is not caught off guard. In the battle between good and evil in heaven, Christ won and Satan lost. In the battle for Jesus... Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers of hell. Christ won, Satan lost. And in the Middle Ages, all the forces of hell that tried to destroy Christ's people and Christ's church did not prevail. He prepared a place for them. They were nourished. The Word of God grew and flourished. In Revelation chapter 12, focuses now on end time. The whole purpose of Revelation chapter 12 is to encourage God's people that Jesus has never lost a battle with Satan yet. There are some Adventists that are so focused on the time of trouble that they're filled with fear and anxiety. I say to you tonight, our focus is not on the mark of the beast it's on the Lamb of God. Amen. Our focus is not necessarily on end events to the exclusion of the living Christ. Now, I need to clarify this because somebody's going to take one sentence, they're going to splash it on the internet and say, Pastor Finley doesn't believe we ought to study end events. That is the furthest from the truth. Did I clarify that enough? Was I plain enough? It's important to know the events that are coming in the history of our world. But you can know all about the events and prove them on some prophetic time chart and not have your heart broken over the living Christ and be lost because intellectualism and a knowledge of the events is not going to get you through. Christ is going to get you through. So the Bible says... Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, the dragon. Who's the dragon, everybody? Satan. Was enraged. What's enraged mean? Angry. With who? With the woman. Who's the woman? The church. Are we going to face a battle at the end? Is it important to know what's coming? Certainly. But is it more important to know who is coming? Is it important to know about the beast? Definitely. But is it more important to know the Lamb of God? Most certainly. Is it important to know about a union of church and state? It is. But is it more important to know about the union of my heart with Christ? Is it important to know about priests and the change of the law? It is. Is it more important to know about Jesus Christ as my high priest who's never lost a, a battle with Satan? Now notice, in the dragon, 
was angry with the woman. He goes to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. God will still have a group of people who keep His commandments. Revelation 14, verse 12. How do they keep His commandments? Revelation 14, 12 says this. Here is the patience, the endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Notice it doesn't say they have faith in Jesus. It's important to have faith in Jesus, but it's more important to have the faith of Jesus. What is the faith of Jesus? The faith of Jesus comes when the living Christ enters my life and I have the quality of faith that He had to face Satan with absolute trust in the Father. The faith of Jesus is the quality of faith that Jesus Christ had as He hung on the cross and with everything around Him being dark, trusted the Father. The faith of Jesus is the absolute trust in God and it's knowing Christ so He totally changes your life. Now notice, God's going to have a group of people who have the faith of Jesus, the quality of that faith, and that faith is so dynamic, it's so powerful, that it leads them to keep the commandments of God, and it leads them to trust God and obey God completely. Revelation chapter 17, Revelation 17, verse 14, Revelation 17, verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb. We're entering into the final conflict. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those that are with Him, those that are what? Those that stand on their own. Those that, that grit their teeth and say, I'm going to be obedient if it kills me. Those that are what? Where are they? With Him. What are they? They are called. They are chosen. They are faithful. We are called to know Christ, we are chosen to witness for Christ, and we are to be faithful in the call, to the call and the choosing. The last days of earth's history will usher in the greatest temptations in the history of this world and the greatest time of trouble, but anchored in Christ, trusting Him knowing Him as a friend, we will go through and witness to the glory of His name. You know, I love that old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations. Is there trouble anywhere? What a friend we have in who? In Jesus. You know the history of that, the story of that song is amazing. The song was written by Joseph M. Scriven. Joseph Scriven was a young man brought up in Ireland and uh, of Irish and then English descent. He was engaged to be married. They had secured the preacher, named the preacher that was married them. The date for the marriage was coming. They had the hall. They sent out the invitations. And the day of his marriage, his wife-to-be decided to take a swim just before the marriage, and she drowned. 
It so devastated Joseph Scriven that he decided to, to leave Ireland. He moved to Canada. He there lived in a little country town up in Canada. He was in his early 20s at the time, and he said, I can never love again. The love of my life is gone. Ten years went by. He was now in his early 30s, and he met Eliza. He fell in love ten years after the death of his fiancée in Ireland. They planned to be married a few weeks before. She developed tuberculosis and died. He said, nothing in this life is worth living for. He took a vow of poverty between he and God, decided that he'd spend his life helping the poor, the disadvantaged. He'd go out and cut wood and bring it to the poor. Lived on a, just a pittance. He got a telegram that his mother was dying. He had no money to go back to Ireland. One day he sat down. He said, I have to communicate with mom before her death. He took a blank piece of paper and he said, Lord, help me write something to mom. And the words came to his mind. Mom, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Joseph Scriven could hang on because he knew Christ. He knew that his best friend was Jesus. He knew that Christ had vanquished the powers of hell. He knew that one day sin and suffering would be over. He knew the Christ that cast Satan out of heaven, the Christ that was victorious in his life, the Christ that was victorious through the Middle Ages, that Christ was his best friend. Father, here we are, your people, before you. You know every need. You know every heart. And we come with absolute confidence that you are the victorious Christ. That you've triumphed over Satan that Satan is a defeated foe. And Father, we sense that we're living in the climactic hours of earth's history. Father, we long to know you more deeply. We long to have our hearts filled with the spirit of the living Christ. We long, Father, to sense your power in our lives. We're tired of powerless living. We're tired of Laodicean complacency. We're tired of the stranglehold of this earth. Our hearts are open just now. Father, for many here tonight, may this be a new beginning. A new beginning of a, a deeper, fuller relationship with you. A new beginning of a sweet relationship 
with our best friend, Jesus. A new beginning of, of confidence in your love and in your care. Jesus, thank you that you're our best friend. You're our living Lord. And we leave this place tonight with the absolute assurance that we are yours and you are ours. In Jesus' name, forever and ever. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.